this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So when you sell your business, obviously you're going to want cash up front. And the reality is that you're likely having an offer that's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, you might get some cash, you might get some cash and shares, you might get some options. Um, there might be an earnout or some sort of management contract in place. And it's in those details, those little details that you've got to work through where the rubber meets the road and you really uh, have an outcome that you're happy with or one that you might regret. My next guest, Doug Chipieski, was uh, the founder, is the founder of Centerpoint Solutions. He sold his company to an Israeli-based company called Nice Systems. Um, he sold it just on the precipice of the tech wreck. And in selling his business, he took some cash, took some stock, took some options. And to tell you the rest of the harrowing story, here's Doug. Doug Chibieski, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Oh, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You officially have the coolest name of any Built to Sell Radio guest <laughs> ever. Chibieski? Are you kidding me? You know, I had a I had a New York cab driver tell me that it was Slavic. He said with the W and the Y in there, I was somewhere in Western Russia, and we all fled to the Slavic countries uh, during the revolution. And so that's what I go with. But yeah, it's a mouthful. You sound like you have a mean wrist shot as a Canadian <laughs> hockey player. I mean, I, like Chipieski has to have a great wrist shot. Like it, you know, actually, I was a basketball player from uh, Wisconsin and, you know, barely saw a skating rink. So anyway, <laughs> I won't hold that against you. Listen, talk about Centerpoint. What did you guys do? What kind of company were you? Well, we were, uh, we were a small software company, and what we did was we built uh, uh, packaged products for the call center industry, and then we branded them for the large telecom companies that they distributed. So we were pretty much all technologists and uh, used distribution channels to, to sell our products. Okay, you lost um, me a little bit. So, so call center industry, so... I mean, can you give me, Sorry. imagine, imagine I'm 10 years old and you're trying to explain what the company <laughs> did. What, what, how would you describe it to a 10 year old? Okay. So, um, uh, 1-800-CALL-ME, um, United Airlines insurance companies, call centers are banks of people answering calls. And I had the good fortune, I'm dating myself here, but I started in Bell Laboratories in 1982 and our group pretty much invented the call center back then. And so at the time, it literally was just, you know, one number distributing to multiple people. Well, that that whole mushroomed into now you see the whole country of, you know, India and Ireland. It's totally changed all community, you know, whole communities with the goods and services around call centers. So what we did was the only people that played in this game were the large 
telco companies, AT&T, Lucent, Northern Telecom, Siemens, Ericsson's, Alcatel, people like that. And they didn't have applications. I mean, this was the 80s. And um, I started my company, I left Bell Labs and started in 92. And there was no software that wasn't coming out of these large companies. So I just got together with some technologists and we thought we could, you know, you know, pick up some of the crumbs that these large companies, you know, weren't interested in. And by golly, that that's what our company became. And so how how big did you get it before you went to sell it? What was the revenue when you went to sell? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the short answer to that question is we were doing about $5 million. Um, but it, and as far as size goes, I, I got up to 60 employees at one time, and the wheels kind of started coming off the cart. Uh, as far as mid-level management and stuff. So, you know, a wise, some wise friends of mine said, hey, listen, you got to either be 30 or 300. There's no in-between. So I elected the, the 30 route and just really shrunk the company. And that's when I fully went the distribution channel route. And we were just all technologists. So we were a very highly profitable $5 million company with revenues increasing rapidly once I implemented that model. And so walk through the business model. You say a, a distributed model. So you're selling your software uh -huh. to call centers or you're selling it to the AT&Ts of the world who in turn sell it to call centers? The latter. Yeah. We, at that time, these big companies would, wouldn't talk to a little company like us. Um, you just couldn't get in the door. And so um, coming from the Bell system, that's where I started. I started with Lucent Technologies, Avaya, AT&T, companies like that. And I, and I just built software from them, convinced them and their clients that it was a good thing. Um, I had some data mining products, some call recording products, some reporting tools. And then they said, yep, we like it. We'll brand it as long as you give us exclusivity, and then we'll sell it to all of our clients. Um, and we'll provide frontline support for it. So I did that for um, different people in the industry. Um, and, and that so that was the model. I would give them a you know a, a copy of software they would produce in their factory, label it, print the manuals. and in many instances, the clients didn't even know who we were. And, and was it um, custom software. software in the sense that they buy it once and then they own it forever? Or were you participating, they would they would buy copies of it or license it from you so there was some sort of ongoing revenue stream? Yeah, it was ongoing revenue stream. I got I got at the end I was just getting quarterly licensing royalties. And that's what pushed it to sell is the the channel was so big, it's like a big barge. Um you know, products that I, you know, made last year would just be getting sold the following year. And then I'd start seeing royalty checks for stuff. I, shoot, we hadn't touched the code in 12, 16 months. Um, so, yeah, our profit margins just went really high. And that's when we got visibility in the industry. And that's when I ended up selling is, is just when I hit that. So the model proved itself um, at that snapshot in time anyway. Got it. So what was the, the trigger, though? I mean, if if you've got a delay, uh, it, some would say, wow, you've got this this revenue stream, this licensing stream going, you know, forever. In theory, that's worth a ton. You know, why, you know, why sell? Do, do you want the honest truth? Yep. <laughs> I, I was in a toxic marriage. Uh, believe it or not. And I was just working nonstop to get to this point. And, um, yeah, I, I was, 
I was finally starting to pay myself after being, you know, broke for all these years. And, but my marriage was falling apart and I literally thought I could monetize it. And I thought it was either the company or my marriage. And I decided to, to try to, you know, you know, dress it up to sell it, to see if I could invest more time in, uh, in my marriage. Hmm. And, um, as I did that, it turned out it was a, a, attractive asset to a few people. So I just, then I just got serious about that and kept pursuing it. But the trigger really was my, my personal life. Um, I was, I was just kind of running out of steam to be, I mean, <laughs> as you think that's, back, that's what happened. as you think back was, you know, was the toxic marriage, I, I mean, was that your fault in the sense of were you investing too much time in the business or was it a marriage destined to fail anyways and the business just happened to be a trigger point? Yeah, I mean, it's always, you know, it's it's it's, it's nobody's fault and it's everybody's fault. Um, it, yeah, we weren't a match made in heaven. I mean, this was not true love. Um, obviously, the acuteness of, you know, bootstrapping, sole owner, self-financed business is incredibly hard. And so it did put strains on the relationship. So obviously that there are a bunch of factors in that as well. But, you know, even after I sold the company, I stayed married for 12 more years before I finally, you know, got out. So, um, I would never use that as an excuse, you know, please, if any married people are listening to this, it's still a great idea to start your own company. Um, I was just with the wrong person. Got it. It's really what it amounted to. Yeah. Maybe, you know, before we get into the actual transaction itself, I'd love to know what you did to sort of dress it up in your own words to sell it. What are some of the things, and again, for people listening, I'm sure they'd be curious to know, um, okay, I've got this business. What do I, you know, what are the things I need to do to dress it up to take it to market? Yeah, I know it's a great question. And, and I don't know if there's any right or wrong answer, but I think, I think if you really just figure out what your value is, I know a lot of people talk about value propositions, but, you know, it goes beyond, you know, earnings and sales and all those ratios you look at, but just really what your value is to the market. And then what, you know, what, you know, takes away from that value, things like, you know, single person dependencies, um, you know, a real strong developer without backup, um, a bunch of you know, what I call ancillary things, other people wouldn't sales and marketing in our industry. It's not worth anything because anybody that was going to buy us would have those engines. So I really just tried to take out all the fat and just increase my value. And, and that was my, that was my dressing up, um, getting rid of some people that weren't as strong, um, you know, backfilling them with other people, um, you know, to be honest, I invested in a really good office manager to make us look professional so that the front end of our company was was professional. I, I did a little more marketing. I, you know, I, I, I made us look a little more professional, maybe a little you know, bigger than what we really were. Um, paid more attention to the, the industry conferences, things like that with, you know, very strong software. Um, I went out and found some of the best technologists I could at the time and just, you know, just came out with really quality software. So that's what I did to dress it up. I've never heard office manager. How does an office manager, how did, how did you think office manager oh. would make you more professional? Like, give me some tactical things. Oh gosh. If you can front end, um, especially engineers, you know, we're not the most eloquent, 
of sorts. Um, if you can get a good office manager that knows your business, that can just manage an incoming call, um, become friends with the caller, um, soften them up uh, before they pass them on to you, um, just handle the loose ends so things don't break along the way, it's worth its weight in gold. Hmm. Um, it, it really, really is. And my strategy for office managers, I actually would get people that were organized with a, with a technical slant to them. And they would come in and learn the business just by just by being that front end person. And then I would start grooming them into software support. And ultimately, some of them even became developers. So they weren't just a you know clerical function, if you will. They were they were pretty strong people, and they, and they were worth it. How did you involve your employees in this dressing up to sell? I mean, did you let them in on the secret that, that the reason you were making some of these changes, like investing in marketing and so forth, was was that you were dressing it up to sell, or was it a total confidential matter? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, it was totally confidential. I mean, I think it's good business practice anyway, as I learned, whether you sell or not. I think it really did increase our corporate value. And so I went at it from that perspective. But also um, preparing for the point where I thought I was ready to have that conversation. Um, what happened was uh, very early on in this process, I, I, I just made a really casual contact with one of you know at the time at the time Lucid was my big distributor, um, and their arch enemies arch enemies enemy was Cisco um, because IP telephony was just coming out. If, now I'm really dating myself. Well, anyway, Cisco approached me about building products for them. And then that quickly went, I mean, they were buying everybody at the time. And that quickly went into a purchase discussion. And I just said, I am, to myself, I said, I am not ready for this. And so that really got me to thinking, okay, what do I have to do to get myself ready, you know, to be acquired? And that's when I started chipping away at the variety of things. And this, I don't know, this is probably over the course of a year I did these things before I really had the first conversation with people to say, you know, or made myself available for those conversations to say, you know, let's let's partner. So the Cisco conversation, what is it what was it in your company that you knew you weren't ready to go to market yet? Like what was what was broken in your company that you knew that there's no way you were gonna be able to consummate a deal with Cisco? Oh, we just weren't big enough. I mean, we just, they would have just gobbled us up. They would have swallowed us. Um, you know, our processes weren't refined. We were going through some software methodology changes, um, just some stuff with our code base. Just, just, I just, I just wasn't strong enough. I had, you know, I had too many, you know, single person dependencies, which is a death blow in, in software world. Um, and uh, I, I just don't, I didn't see that deal consummating. I just didn't see, see the transaction happening where I currently was with a company the size of Cisco. And so you doubled down and, and started dressing it up. Ultimately, when you went to take it to market a year later, uh, it had about $5 million in, in revenue. Uh-huh. And, and what kind of profit margin would you have been working on? You mentioned it was healthy, but roughly what kind of profit margin would you have had on that $5 million? Oh, 60%. Wow, sixty percent profit. Sixty-five percent. So you're yeah. you're kind of netting three million on the phone, uh -huh. uh -huh. and and so what was the process by which you you took the company to market? I mean, did you hire an M and A banker? Did you like what? How, what was nope. your first step when you thought you were ready to go? 
I mean, I am really provincial at this, John. I mean, I, 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 again, this is all new to me. This is my first company and I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest with you. Um, really what I, I didn't take it to market. Um, there were some logical purchases of us and I just became visible to them. And I knew that I was, I thought I was pretty confident once I educated the principals in this company, it would become self-evident to them that we would be an asset they wanted. So my going to market was really just a, a, a series of educating the key partners that I thought we would be of value to. And to be honest, the first one I went to immediately saw the value and, and then it went fast. Um, the, the, you know, it went from a conference and a couple meetings in the fall to the CEO being in my office in November. Um, so that, that part of it went very fast. So when you say keeping visible, so you're, you're at the industry events, you're educating them. Were, were you worried at all that you'd be giving away too many secrets and, and sort of educating all these people about what your business was? You know, there are no secrets in software. Um, if, if people, you know, people try to keep this intellectual property close to their chest, there, there, there are no secrets. And, um, and I just had that approach and I just tried to paint the picture of, of what we've done and where we were in the product life cycle. And, and a smart technologist will look at that and say, that takes a lot to build, you know? Um, so the key was finding the smart technologist and then educating them on what we're doing. As far as somebody coming at us and knocking us off, um, actually one of my partners tried to do that. Um, but I just, I, to be honest, I just, I guess I just never really worried about that because um, I couldn't afford to worry about it. And I just tried to stay ahead of the game. So the first company you, you really got serious about in this sort of educational courting way was Nice Systems? That's correct. This is this Israeli-based company. Um, uh -huh. And and talk a little bit uh, about those conversations. I mean, who made the first move? You you said it kind of became self evident <laughs> that that they should buy you, but but did you propose it? Did they propose it? How did that kind of oh, happen? Okay. Yeah, this is this this actually is quite a humorous story. These, I think I told you there a bunch of um, well, everybody from Israel is in the army in one fashion or another, but um, a great group of people, and we started combining our technology together. Um, our software products, I had, I had a data mining product for telephony stuff and they had a video, they do a bunch of video monitoring and we were going to marry those two technologies and our data mining tool could find a bunch of events that they did. Don't want to get too far in the weeds. Anyway, it got to the point where we needed to share technology and the Israelis are like, well, we're not letting you look under our hood. And I said, well, if we can't look under your hood, we can't, <laughs> we can't work together. And then, you know, basically from there, it just went to, you know, how much, you know, are you for sale? You know, because we want, we want, we see the technical advantage of us working together, but we can't get over, we won't share intellectual property with a third party vendor. So that's what propagated it. So that's when they asked me, you know, am I for sale? And I said, you know, let's just, I'm willing to discuss it basically. And that's what started it all. So yeah, no investment bankers, nothing like that. So, so, yeah. so these are some former Israeli Mossad agents, is that right? Like special forces guys. <laughs> I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Okay, yeah, that, well, that was. A, we won't that get into detail. No, I'm, I'm just. I'm just. Kidding. Former no, military great, officers. Great 
Yeah. Yeah. They were super nice people. I, I, I can't say enough about them. They're good people. Great. And so, so they said, how much, how did you reply? Well, they never, they, you know, they eventually, uh, what they did was, you know, we, 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 you know, I let them do a little bit of due diligence and they were familiar with our technology and how we built software. And so I gave them all that and I gave them some basic, you know, balance sheet information. And then they, um, they had a North American office in Vancouver. And so we had a couple meetings up there and then they just whiteboarded some offers um, at the time, you know, again, this is 2000, um, <laughs> a, a, a monumental year in U.S. technology, at least financially. Uh, you know, everything was, you know, a little cash stock, you know, stock and stock options. That's how every that's how all these deals were going down. So they just put some offers out and I was up there with my lawyer and we went to another room and talked about it and we just went back and forth a bunch. And finally we left, you know, we, we didn't come to an agreement and, and I went back uh, to Denver where my office was and uh, kind of gave them what I, where I thought we were apart. And then they just, they, we just, uh, agreed to meet back in Vancouver and maybe a month we waited, went back to Vancouver and we were close enough and we finally came up to, came to an agreement. How, how proportionally, you know, on a percentage basis, were you different when you decided to leave uh, and go and sort of spend a month or two, uh, back in Denver? I mean, were you 10% apart, 50% apart? Like, just give us a sense. Um, yeah, probably, so, probably 20, 25% apart. Um, it really, it really was more the terms I, I was struggling with. They wanted really an all stock deal with a lot and then a lot of weight on options. Um, I personally just didn't have a lot of, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I didn't believe in options. People were getting very wealthy with stock options at the time. Again, this is 2000, remember, <laughs> early 2000 or late 99, actually. Um, and, uh, the market hadn't crashed yet. So people are getting wildly successful. So that's, that's really what they wanted to do it in. And I really was demanding some cash in the deal and that, that really not so much the number, but how it was structured is what the, what the sticking point was. Got it. And so again, the three currencies that were on the table, and again, this is hugely valuable, Doug, for, uh, for everybody listening, because I think, oh, uh, you know, when, when offers come through, we all assume it's like 100% cash paid up front the day the deal closes. And of course, it's never very well, rarely, you know, that deal, it's, uh, it's usually, you know, a percentage yeah. up front and a percentage downstream. But in your case, there were three currencies, there was, there was cash, and you wanted to maximize the cash up front. They were also officer, office, uh, offering some shares in nice systems, the the, the Israeli based mm -hmm. company, and then some some mm -hmm. options uh, that would become valuable should the shares of nice, you know, grow in value. Exactly. Got it. And then, I mean, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, proportions here again for folks, uh, you know, what was the cash they were offering? How, how, how much you were apart on that? That would be helpful for folks to know. Um, and then, and then maybe talk a little bit about ultimately where you landed in terms of the proportion of the deal that was in equity versus, uh, versus cash. Oh gosh. Um, uh, okay. Um, I, I mean, at, at first there was relatively no cash. 
Um, and, and that was, that was kind of a showstopper for me. And, um, and so it was, and then maybe 70, I mean, at the time it would have been maybe 70 equities and 30 options at the strike price of those options at, at the time. Um, their stock was going up quite a bit, which was one of their leverage against me is that, you know, every time we talk, they're like, well, our, 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 our share price just went up. That means your 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 shares and options go down. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, they had a valid point, right? I mean, their stock was going up, so they were kind of trying to recalibrate the deal during that 30-day period. And I, I saw their point. So, um, yeah, it was kind of like a 70-30 deal, no cash. Um, eventually, I got, um, I don't know, I got enough cash that I felt comfortable with. Um, it was still a fraction of the deal if if it were evaluated. It depends when the deal was evaluated, obviously, because with the equities and the stocks or the options, um, you know, the percentages change. But the cash was just was a fraction of it. But it was enough, at least I felt, to um, – I hadn't paid myself in 10 years. So, I mean, at least it was enough to you know dig myself out of my own little personal hole and uh, just get back to a little bit of a normal living now, um, Doug, again to try to, yeah, go ahead, Chad. Doug, your company was, was generating $3 million of EBITDA. How come you ha- weren't mm-hmm. able to pay yourself? What was, where was that money going? I just, I just got there. I mean, I literally just got there. You, that, that's the run rate I was on when I sold. Mm. But my, I, I talked about these these uh, quarterly payments. I got quarterly payments for my royalty fees. They had just started kicking in hmm. on software we had done, you know, way before. So, um, oh, I shouldn't say. That. I mean, I, I I paid myself the last the last two years of the company. I mean, we were making money, um, and I was paying myself Social Security minimum at the time. But I mean, I wasn't I wasn't taking. I was definitely the lowest paid person in the company for years. Um, so I, uh, but it, it, it literally just, the, the revenue just started coming in the last 12 months Got it. of, uh, when I, so, which is, I know it's ironic, but several other business owners, I know similar things have happened. And so, so it's on the day of closing, um, you know, what proportion, I know the stock price moved up and down and so forth, but in the day of closing, what proportion would have been on, in cash of the, the kind of in theory, like the paper value of the deal ballpark? 60. 60% in cash, 40% option. Oh, how, what, percent, what, what percentage in cash? No, yeah. the, on, on, the, on the day of closing, oh gosh, uh, the cash would have been less than 10%. Got it. Okay. Got it. And, and so the rest is sort of tie, you're tying yourself to, to nice systems and their fortune. Right. And, and right. what, you know, how did you rationalize that in your mind? I mean, did that feel like, were you, did you feel like you were taking a risk in doing that or did it feel like, what were some of the you're thinking? I didn't again. I, you know, I don't know. Again, at the time, all, not only were all the deals being done this way, but they're all very profitable for the seller. Um, So for instance, when they announced the sale of our company to them, their stock went, I believe, from 70 to 100 that day. So 
you know, my deal looked really good and my options looked really, really, really good. Um, now the, the, the train wreck story of this is they didn't get me executable securities until their restated earnings four times, the dot-com crash, their stock effectively went from a hundred to 12. <laughs> so the stock options were worthless. The equity was now a fraction of the cash. <laughs> and I ended up in a two-year lawsuit to try to reclaim some of that equity that was promised. So that's the that's the morbid side of selling my company. Yeah. Well, so wow. So so many so many questions that trigger. So, in terms of the the lawsuit, what what were you uh, what were you sort of alleging that that they had done? I mean, the equity dropped in value. That's the risk you take. What? Why? Why was there any sort of uh, wrongdoing by that? I mean, well, obviously that was their position. I mean, my position was I did this transaction based on financials that you put in front of me were were <sighs> fair and honest. And they, by restating, you know, the telecom industry was a funny industry. I mean, there are a lot of people in jail in the telecom industry right. during Bernie this period because yeah. they. they yeah, Joe Nacio. I mean, you know, and, and everybody was doing the same thing. They was they were they were they were taking you know long term contracts and recognizing all the revenue in the current quarter to pump their stock up. Well, when they all started going down, everybody in the telecom industry just piled on. They were like, "Well, shoot! Since everybody's doing it, we're going to do it too. We're going to bite the bullet now." Um, literally, I think they stopped trading on nicest stock. It went from 50 to 10 in 10 minutes on the NASDAQ and they stopped trading on it. And I was sitting there with all those securities because I, you know, I, I, they didn't get me executable securities soon enough. So I could have started liquidating them. So that's, that's, that was the essence of the lawsuit. And then we, I don't know, it's a long story. My, my lawyer ended up in rehab and I just, you know, they offered me a settlement. <laughs> I took the settlement and tried to retire until I flunked. And <laughs> how does, how does one flunk out of retirement? How exactly that? Oh, that trust me. Just call me for another podcast. I'll give you a blueprint on how to flunk retirement. No, let's hear it. What, I mean, give us the, cause a lot of people think, you know, the, oh. the panacea is selling and retiring. So is it not always oh, tracked gosh. up to be? Oh, uh, uh, boredom is debilitating. And I don't know very many entrepreneurs that are good at golf and skiing, you know, every day. Um, and maybe there are, I mean, I'm just wired differently. And, um, you know, what I thought was the problem in my marriage is that I, you know, work too much and focus and all that stuff. Um, it's just who I am. And so to, you know, my wife just wanted to stop everything and just, you know, I don't know. I don't know what she wanted us to do, but um, I couldn't do that. I, I just felt I had to contribute. And I, I ended up, you know, a friend of mine called called for help with his company and now I own the company and we're doing another startup and it's awesome. Hmm. I'm, I'm having the time of my life. So yeah, but retirement was not for me. It was terrible. Flunking out of retirement. It's awful. 
I love it. So as you think back on the on the transaction, and you know, I ask this question a lot because what I, what I do find is that um, that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of second guess their exit. Uh, it's something that we don't get a chance to do every day. Certainly, you know, a lot of people go through it once and and then have sort of misgivings or thinks, oh, I wish I'd played it differently. So for you, if you were counseling, you know, the old Doug before. Um, going to market, what sort of advice would you be giving him, um, you know, before his first meeting with nice systems? Yeah, you know, I'd probably, you know, I'd probably say check all greed at the door. Um, try to come in with a humble heart and an open mind as a baseline. I mean, you know, you should be honored that you just created something of value that somebody wants. So just start there. And then um, try to go into the negotiations really with a vanilla mind um, get the data, then go in the room and think about it. Um, for, from my, I wish I would have got more cash, obviously, <laughs> but you know, money was never in my top five priorities. So I felt I did get enough cash to do some things. I really didn't predict for the worst. So I, again, and I, in Lord knows, I didn't want to end up in this lawsuit. So if I had to do it all over again, I would ask for more cash. I would have kept the deal very, very clean, so there there possibly weren't any future variables. Um, and then, actually, this is one thing that comes to mind too. I would definitely pay much more attention to my employee contract because if you have a valuable asset, they're probably going to want you to stick around. Well, I didn't really pay attention to my my salary, my position, what they were going to have me do. And the reality of it is they, they kind of wanted to separate me from my company um, under the guise that they want me to do other things. The reality is they really wanted, didn't want me managing my people anymore because they wanted to control that entity that they just purchased. <laughs> and that didn't register with me. And, and in retrospect, I really wish I would have spent more time thinking about that post-sale employment arrangement. It's such a it's such a big piece of any uh, negotiation because we all think as entrepreneurs that you're selling your company and that you're going to ride off into the sunset. Yeah. But realistically, as you point out, Doug, there's there's usually a you know a, a period of time, whether it's a year, two, three years, where you're sort of uh, you're an employee of the buyer, and and under what terms that employment contract exists is a it can can have a huge uh, swing factor on the overall sort of experience. So that's a great piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you're different. When when you when you sell, man, you're not the owner anymore. Remember, you are you are gone. I mean, you're not even a peer. And so, you know, the key people in your company, all of a sudden, they're competing with you. <laughs> Almost, I, you you can even be good friends, but trust me, you are not. It's a different position as soon as you sell that company. And so, not only did I just lose some managerial, you know, not power. That's not the right word, but influence. Uh, during that, but then you've got the executives from the other company coming in and start, you know, putting their influence in. It's, and organizationally, it's really tough to keep the business rhythm that you've established going during that period. It's, it's really tough. Um, and in fact, we we didn't we didn't we couldn't do it. Um, several people left after that. Yeah, it's a it's a tough uh, tough situation to manage through. Um, Doug, where do people reach you? Uh, can they connect with you on LinkedIn, or what's what's the best way for people to reach out if they they wanted to get in touch? 
Yeah, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, or they can just uh, send me an email at my name, which is uh, Doug Chipieski, D-O-U-G-C-H-A-P-I-E-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. Well, that's a very generous offer. Thanks, Doug. And thank you for joining yeah. us on Built Star Radio. Okay. My pleasure, John. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.